Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Krauss. For our first two episodes this season, we focused on some really cool science and nanotechnology topics in our interviews with Professor Jillian Guriak and doctoral student Liz Ladadio. Today, we're switching gears, though, to talk about an important issue for universities, and that is the subtle ways colleges discriminate against poor students. That was the title of an article that was written and illustrated with cartoons by Vox.com senior graphics reporter Alvin Chang. It's a tough topic with a lot of different complicated facets to it. For example, I personally found it really eye-opening to realize how people's assumptions about independent versus interdependent values in education, that's like, do you think it's more important for a college student to learn leadership skills or to learn to collaborate with others? Those assumptions, uh, A, partly depend on class background, and B, are pretty clearly biased in our education system in favor of people from affluent backgrounds. So it is totally worth reading Alvin's article, which does a great job of explaining a ton of data and research evidence, and we'll link to that in our show notes. But here on the podcast, we're bringing you an audio-only version, which we recorded when Alvin presented a webinar for us in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology. You'll hear Alvin discuss some of the information from his article, and then we switch into question and answer mode, where you'll hear some questions from me and other folks in the audience. And that includes graduate students Peter Clement, Becky Rodriguez, and Nicholas Namath, and faculty member Rigoberto Hernandez. The original webinar we did was about an hour long, so unfortunately we had to cut some really interesting stuff. And I apologize, the audio quality on this episode is not as good as we usually like. We ended up having to use the recording from the video conference software, which is kind of fuzzy and glitchy, but I hope you'll stick with it because it's a fascinating conversation. So without further ado, here is Alvin Chang. Uh, so I'm a reporter at Vox and draw these cartoon-like things, or this is how I tell a lot of these stories. And I've been working on this series of stories that illustrates how the American education system has many mechanisms that reproduce wealth. In other words, there are many filters that kind of perpetuate the current class structure that make it extremely difficult for people to achieve upward mobility. And this particular issue of how colleges act toward first-generation students and low-income students especially caught my attention because I saw this single chart that was kind of astounding to me. And it shows that if your father was educated, chances are he'll pass down his educational attainment to you. And this was just astounding to me that your father's education, and they use father's education because there's some data issues here, but you're not going to move that far away from how educated your father was. You're probably going to stay within one quintile of your father's education. And so I was kind of digging in a little further to see whether this has gotten better or worse. And then I found another chart that kind of showed it's gotten worse. The gap between the poor students who enroll in college and the rich students who enroll in college, that gap has gotten wider from people born 50 years ago to people who would have gone to college about 10 to 15 years ago. And not only that, but the, oh, and, you know, I was, I was finding chart after chart basically showing how this problem kind of perpetuates. Even when low-income students attend school, they tend to go to public schools that are, uh, have a low selectivity. And the gap between those who complete college and those who don't has gotten wider between the rich and poor. A lot of times when I see these kind of charts that astound me, I start to search for a way to think about this or kind of a framework in which to think about this. Because I think it's one thing to say, oh, this is kind of a problem perpetuating inequality and all of that. But so I teach undergrads and I teach a data visualization class. And one of the things that occurred to me was this was happening in my class as well. I was seeing the students from lower income backgrounds not finishing the class, dropping out. And I kind of wanted to find a way to understand if is there something I'm doing or is there something that's invisible that I'm not seeing that is happening in my class or in this larger college environment. 
So I found a piece of research by this woman at Northwestern. Her name is Nicole Stevens. And she asked a bunch of college administrators what they value in students. Uh, there, are, there are two types of items. There's independent items and interdependent items. Independent meaning that you're good at doing things for yourself, problem solving on your own, doing independent research, expressing yourself, and interdependent meaning you're good at doing things with other people or listening to other people or collaborating with other people. And the administrators at all types of colleges had a bias towards these independent norms. And that was kind of a mismatch between how the reasons why first-generation students went to college, they tended to go to college for interdependent reasons, reasons of like, you know, helping your family after you're done with college, providing your children with a better life, or giving back to the community. People whose parents had already gone to college were more interested in things like expanding their knowledge of the world. I mean, these are kind of vague descriptions, but I think it gets at this notion that these continuing generation students, for them, college wasn't about other people, it was about them. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just understanding what the expectations are. So this researcher did this really cool experiment where she gave incoming freshmen a whole bunch of letters from the president. They were made up. And one of the letters was interdependent norms, saying you're here to help others, you're here to help your families. And the other one was independent norms. You're here to learn a lot about yourself, to pursue independent research, stuff like that. They were asked to do a simple little puzzle test. And those who got the independent message, the continuing generation students did far better. So in other words, when there was a match up between your expectations and what the messaging was from the university, they did better. That, that independent message tended to hurt first-generation students for the interdependent message when the first-generation students who have interdependent expectations got a message with the interdependent message, they kind of caught up. So I kind of wanted to explore how this mismatch could cause spiraling, could cause students to drop out of college, not finish college, not do as well in college. And the way that a handful of researchers explained it to me was there are all these little hints that are dropped throughout your college experience that you might not fit in. So you have a whole bunch of upper middle class kids who are kind of going out for the night and this girl wondering, hey, how did they finish their homework already? And this was from an exact example that a first generation student gave me of one of the first reminders that they might be different. Or going to dinner with their roommate's parents and realizing, oh, I'm not like these people. So a psychologist who studied this said, this is kind of an example of stereotype threat. It's this idea that maybe you're not supposed to do as well. You think you're not as capable and you kind of live up to those lower expectations. And I think one of the things that a lot of first-generation students seem to stress was that we don't do a great job of talking about what class background you come from. We don't have a very good idea of what class background we're in. We just get kind of implicit messages that we might not be a part of a certain class or we might not be a part of a certain group, but we can't actually define it very well. So what's astounding to me is that people who earn zero to $19,000 a year, there's a huge chunk of them who think they're in the middle class, they're upper middle class, they're upper class. And you see people who've earned 75 to 99000 a year think they're in the lower or working class. So it's, there's not a clear delineation. It's very mushy here. So the process of spiraling was described to me this way, and these quotes are from Nicole Stevens. She said, imagine this process. You go to college, you don't fit in, and I identified with this. My roommates, my friend group, were like, oh, you're a strange kid. So that you start to not fit in because of these class background uh, mismatch. So you don't speak as much in class, you're involved in fewer activities, you speak less in class, and then that decreased engagement 
means that you're not interacting as much with people from other class backgrounds. And you can't actually adapt if you're not having contact with those people. And eventually, you change even less. You don't have as many socialization opportunities. This is kind of the, the way that kids don't fit in and they eventually drop out. So one of the really interesting things about this piece was that there was a very um, interesting way to think about solutions here. It, it largely comes from Nicole's research where she thought, okay, what if we short circuit this a little bit? What if instead of students not knowing their class background, what if we just told it straight up, hey, you are from a lower class family. Things are going to be hard for you. You're going to have to ask for more help. You're going to have to study harder. You're going to realize that when you go out to dinner with your friend's parents, they might all be doctors and lawyers. And it's okay that your parents aren't doctors and lawyers. You'll be fine. And the way she just tested this was she had a whole bunch of incoming students attend one of two education sessions before the semester. It was just an hour long. It was very short. And one of those sessions was called Difference Education, where you had a low-income student and you had a higher-class student talking about what their experience was like, given their class background. So someone saying, hey, I went to a private school for high school, and I got a lot of good college prep, a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention, and that was kind of an adjustment for me to adjust to a lecture. And some lower-class students saying, well, my parents didn't go to college, so I didn't really know how to ask them for help. It was hard for me to figure out what classes to take. I had to go get tutoring. The other condition was these students giving advice to the incoming freshmen, but just saying, go to class on time. If you have trouble, go to office hours. Broad things that aren't in the class context. And so this part's astounding to me. When they looked at the GPAs of these students at the end of their first year, it turned out that if you're put in the standard condition, given these rod, non-class-based instruction, the gap between first-generation students and continuing-generation students was pretty wide, pretty much a, a half-letter grade. But the difference education students, they ended up kind of catching up. These were within the margins. So when you were given instruction based on your class background, you can kind of close this gap. And same for seeking help. Those who attended the difference education session were more likely to seek help. One of the really fascinating things about this problem, for me at least, was it took literally a one-hour session telling these students, hey, your experience is going to be different. Your experience is going to be harder. You're going to have to do something different because the expectations of higher education are not necessarily the, uh, the things that you're used to. That was enough to close this gap. It had nothing to do with ability. It had nothing to do with whether they are prepared. It was just knowing that this class gap existed. So a lot of the research has been done on this kind of how can the students change. But in my reporting, I found there was also a lot of work being done on how universities can, can also change, can also change those expectations they have. Because you know it's not totally fair to expect students to adjust to these kind of standards that are you know fairly arbitrary, honestly. And it's something that I've been thinking about teaching my class, thinking about what are the things that I ask students to do that I just assume should be skills that college students have, but are actually just, I, I just made these up because this is the experience I had, and I assume that this is some skill that they should also have, and that it's more important than some of the more interdependent skills. So that's kind of the overview, and well, I'll answer some questions on you know, virtually anything. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that overview. Um, I was curious just now as you were talking about your own experience teaching undergrads, what are some of those specific things that you've become aware of that might be arbitrary versus genuine skills that you think they need to, to go forward? Yeah. One of the ways that I've kind of learned 
technical skills or data skills, but self-exploration was to go through, fail, bang my head against the wall, eventually have a breakthrough and have that aha moment. I thought that was really powerful. So a lot of times I would create environments where students could have these aha moments, where students could figure out, oh, I don't know how to solve this problem. Let me go through this problem solving process by myself and come to class and say, oh, I think I figured something out. And I think this is incredibly important, but I also think I didn't realize that I had to train students to do this. I just assumed it's like giving someone a Lego set and telling them, you know, build an airplane or whatever and figure out how to get those pieces together. And one of the things that I now go through is saying, here's how to go through your research. Here's how to think about solving the problem first. And then you can veer from that, you know, if you'd like. So that was one thing, uh, very tiny adjustments that I made. Uh, another one I made was talking through class, essentially. So there are a handful of data interactives online that kind of show you what your high school experience was like in the context of the American secondary school environment. And it shows you, you know, how far ahead your high school was or how far behind your high school was compared to the average American high school. I always have students now go through and put in their schools and talk to each other about just how far they, they are from the norm or, or that they're right on the norm. And it's, it's always astounding to me for them to kind of recognize, oh, I'm in a classroom full of people who went to very wealthy, affluent schools. My experience is going to be very different here. And so I try to create these little implicit exercises that help them, help them understand, I guess that they're not all coming from the same environment. And this is a very, these are journalism students and they, they don't take a math class coming into this data visualization class. So a lot of it is very technical to them. So I try to warn them and say, you, you know, a lot of this is going to depend on where you're coming from. You might have to ask for more help depending on your previous educational experience. I just have a quick question. I was just curious, um, I know it wasn't the point of the article, but it's interesting that some of like the difference education actually appears to potentially be decreasing performance of continuing generation students and also decrease continuing generation students looking for resources. Um, I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that. But it's great that like people are brought to the same level, but you would almost hope that that level would potentially be the higher level of the two, right? Yeah. So I asked a researcher who studies this and counsels students about this. Can you talk a little bit about how, how important that priming ends up being? Just because, you know, you, when you tell a kid, hey, you're more prepared for this, you don't need that as much help, you get rid of some of that uh, uncertainty. You, you say, oh, you're, you're cut out for this. I think what's tricky is at some point, you're going to have to create a college environment. You're going to have to create expectations that it can't be independent for every single student. And the question is, who is it going to favor? Or are we favoring people without knowing it? And I think that's kind of the hard question to wrestle with, because at some point, the things we do are going to hurt in a continuing education student in, in exchange. It's not necessarily a zero-sum game, but, you know, there are exchanges we're going to have to make. I suppose that's true of virtually everything we're talking about in kind of the public policy world right now. But, yes, it's certainly fascinating, and I don't know if people in higher ed are willing to make some of those sacrifices, to be honest, because some of the things are kind of near and dear to us. Some of those things, like, I don't know. There are lots of things that we do in college admissions that we think of as inherent to getting into college, inherent to, to college, in fact. And I don't know if higher education is willing to get rid of some of those things, especially at kind of this undergrad level where there is such a kind of nostalgia at play. The sense I got was not every, everyone is willing to wrestle with that. So a lot of the articles showed that if you give kind of positive feedback and encouragement to uh, people of color from lower wealth backgrounds, that they'll do better in undergrad. 
So how do you think that we can go about doing that in undergrad without singling out students who come from these backgrounds? Yeah, this is something that I believe Nicole also ran into. You know, like, how, how do you provide difference education without creating this uncomfortable environment where it's saying, hey, you're a person of color who comes from a low-income background. Like, here's what you should listen to. So I think one of the harder parts of implementing these curriculums is it requires quite a bit of training in order to implement these correctly. And I know there's, there are a few researchers kind of digging into this a little now, but I think, in my experience, one of the crucial parts of talking about this is providing context. It's not just saying, like, hey, you, you, you are a disadvantaged person, but rather saying, this is why, this is the, the historical context and the kind of data context and what that means. I think all of that kind of context ends up being incredibly important. It's, it kind of reminds me of the ways that we talk about school segregation in that when you talk about it in a vacuum, it gets really uncomfortable because you start saying, hey, we should bust a whole bunch of white kids over here and bust a whole bunch of black kids over here. And then it gets really uncomfortable because, you know, why are we doing this? You know, we decided to live here. We decided to live here. But then you provide the cultural context of housing segregation and all the pretty racist zoning laws of, of America's past and school segregation that's ongoing by Brown v. Board. And, and you walk through a lot of these kind of historical narrative of how we got here, essentially. And I think that conversation ends up being a lot more fruitful and a lot less about kind of pointing out individuals and more about understanding that we live in a larger system and it creates biases that we need to kind of correct for Another place that comes in a little bit is the graph that was shown earlier about the quality, quote unquote, of colleges and universities that like first generation or continuing education students can attend or will attend. And I, I think the undergraduate institution you attend really can influence how prepared you are for graduate studies. And so going back to the thought of like how well high school prepares you for college, I think there's a similar thing where it's how well does your undergraduate institution prepare you to perform chemistry at a high level, right? And I think that's something that's not, it's not addressed in our department, I know. And it's sort of just assumed that everyone day one is at the same level and expected to be there. And so I think it'd be interesting to see that addressed over time. Yeah, I've heard about students who come in from different institutions and then that affects like how many of their entrance exams they pass right away. And so if you only pass one or two or three out of the four, and that means you need to retake the other ones, so then you're studying for that on top of doing your classes, on top of PAing while your peers are not having to do that, I can imagine that like starting kind of a snowball. And obviously, as with all of these things, there's lots of individual variability within these groups, but I can imagine there being kind of group effects of what college you came from originally. Yeah, I was talking to a chancellor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Chancellor Blank, and she was saying that one of the hardest things they're trying to do is make sure that people who are in state, who, who come from these lower class backgrounds, that they apply to the University of Wisconsin. It becomes astoundingly hard to convince them that that's something they should do. And it actually kind of surprised me that someone with, you know, I think the SATs are now out of 1,600 again, but someone with, let's say, like a 14 or 1,500 SAT score, not thinking that they should be going to a state flagship. And I think I didn't realize just how powerful those expectation limitations were. So what Peter was touching on, it kind of reminded me of what the article was talking about, about how GPA is, tends to be the predictive measure from high school of how a student will perform in undergrad. And I think that plays a big role in grad school as well, of how well you do on your entry-level exams will 
somehow be an indicator of how you'll perform in grad school because in theory you should already know what is on those exams. But how can faculty take away this bias of, because um, I mean, even for myself and for grad students I know, there were faculty who were discouraging and saying, you know, this probably means that you won't finish, that you won't, you know, get a master's even. So how, how can faculty, I guess, you know, take the idea that these exams, they should be level out the playing field for grad students, but also not kind of ixnay the potential that grad students have? So there's this phenomenon that happens in high school that I think applies. It's been studied more in high schools where high school staff see students who are promising and they immediately mark them in their heads as, oh, that's the person that's going to move on. That's the person that's going to be successful and get out of here. And everyone else is treated differently. And so those are the people who get the most resources. And I think this applies to the situation where, you know, if we think of it like uh, shoots and ladders or like a Monopoly board, there are, there are many things that help you get one square ahead. And those things accrue over time. And, and essentially in high school, if you're the kid who's supposed to make it around the board, you get one square at a time. Every time there's a square available, you get that square. And I think in, in college, there's, there are many small little filters or, or small little resources that are doled out and that accrue to certain students. And those students tend to be better off students who come in, who look promising coming in, who look like graduate students coming in, who look like people who could be promising researchers. And I think that that's something to be hyper aware of as faculty, in my experience, what's hard is giving the energy to students who are not on the same page as you, giving the energy to students who are struggling, struggling to even be on the same page as you when you're trying to teach a concept or when you're trying to explain to them what they should be doing or how they should be researching. And I think those are tiny little actions that they're honestly, I think they're, they're incredibly difficult for faculty who think they're going to show up to class and just talk about the things that they specialize in. I think it's you know, those little extra resources, the, the value added that, that we as faculty don't necessarily give to the students who need it most. Hi. Um, so we've been talking here sort of about what can be done to try to help disadvantaged students when they get to college. But I you know there's a huge gap in terms of students from lower economic backgrounds even getting to college. And so, I mean, we've sort of been alluding to how the disadvantaging of these students begins even before they get to college, when they're when they're growing up and in middle school and in high school. So I was wondering if you could speak to maybe how the persistence and growth of poverty and inequality and the impact that they have on those students in the ways that they're being disadvantaged, you know, to a great degree before they even are able to get to, to college. Yeah, so that's a great question. So I can just kind of start from the beginning. So one of the things that is incredibly difficult to pull apart is this country's history of housing discrimination and this country's history of school discrimination, school segregation. And so anytime you start mapping where people live and where they go to school, it, you, you end up getting these huge disparities. And on top of that, there are a handful of Supreme Court rulings that are now allowing for kind of further splintering. So further hoarding, hoarding of resources. Because at the, at the end of the day, you know, the American public education system is essentially asking people to pay in taxes so that everyone can have, you know, ideally a relatively equal education. But because we fund schools with local property taxes, which is really a, a kind of a strange mechanism if you think about it, where you get to keep your own dollars within your own area. There are now some communities who are saying, I don't want to be a part of this district anymore. I, don't, I want my property taxes to go to a smaller district that I want to secede. And now we're starting to see a whole bunch of school districts secede from their larger school district to form smaller, much more wealthier, much more homogeneously white 
communities. And then, you, you know, you're, you're kind of starving the district you're leaving when you do that. I think the next kind of point to hit is might be college admissions, where the general public thinks there's a system in place to help high school students pay for their undergraduate education through things like Pell Grants and financial aid. But one of the biggest, biggest scams of the financial aid system is schools dole out financial aid as a recruitment tool more so than they do as a way to help students pay for college. So at the end of the day, I think a lot of times we think of financial aid as uh, it's a discount, let's say. But really, it's not a discount. It's a way to charge everyone a different amount of money. And there's an incentive for schools to charge the most amount of money that you're willing to pay for your education. And for some people, it's going to, going to be the max sacrifice. For other people, it's going to be less. But if you, if you can pay zero or you can only pay close to zero, there is a huge incentive for schools not to take you. So there's an entire industry that's burgeoned out of these kinds of incentives called the enrollment management industry. And it's not every school that does this, but there's, you know, it's most, I would say. And they end up figuring out a way to offer financial aid to recruit a class that looks a certain way, a class with, you know, high SAT scores, a class that's going to help them be financially sustainable. That ends up being a class that's pretty discriminatory against low-income students who might need the actual help to pay for college. And so there's this term called the cocktail effect, where you give financial aid to students in order for their parents to go to cocktail parties and talk about the fact that their kid is going to school on scholarship, and then that kind of pushes them to come to your school, and they pay closer to full tuition, but you have valuable financial aid dollars going to them and not lower-income students. So, you know, there, <laughs> there's so many layers of, there's so many structural layers of biases that make mobility difficult in this country, mobility in education, through education, and I think as I dig through each of these, I'm just more and more astounded <laughs> how entrenched these things are, how when you're born into wealth, you're also born into a track that, you know, that essentially fast tracks you through an undergraduate education at a decent school through, you know, gives you more weight to a graduate degree if you so please. I think it's, it's a much deeper problem, but I think, you know, this, in this scope, the way to think about this is okay, we're getting a certain number of low-income students and first-generation students into our doors. How do we help them succeed? Okay, so thinking about our center as a you know, collection of academic institutions with mostly graduate trainees, but not entirely, the, uh, the difference education thing I think is really exciting, that that was kind of effective in that one, one study, so trying to model something on that. But are there other things that you've come across or that you think make a good exercise for identifying our, the biases that are there. So if an organization like, like our center wants to sit down and say, okay, what do we need our new people to know? What are skills and knowledge that they need? And how do we kind of get past our blindness of assuming, oh, everybody knows that. It doesn't even cross our minds. Yeah. I mean, I think what's difficult is, so I'm a visual person, and I imagine every college environment being like jello and everyone's kind of tossed into jello, and it's colored a certain way. And as, as long as we're kind of aware of what color is, you know, what environment we're creating, I think that helps, helps you close the feedback loop a little bit to say, okay, here's, what's, here's the input, here's the output, how can we change and get a different input and output? And I think that, you know, the very fact that you guys are doing this is, I think, a good sign. Not to your question, but there are, I, I think we have these conversations often, with the people in the room, but 
I think what's really important is to figure out who's not in the room and why they aren't in the room, because that ends up being the biggest, the biggest issue. Because the people in the room essentially create the color of the jello or the flavor of the jello. And I, I'm, this jello metaphor is going way too far. I'm really sorry. But, um, but I think that's what's really difficult to think about is it's really easy to say, okay, we have our tribe now and we've decided who to include in our community. How do we improve our community? That part I don't think is hard because humans are very good at taking care of our tribe. I think the, the part that gets really difficult is when we say, who are we leaving out of the tribe? Why are we leaving them out of the tribe? And how can we include them here? Because I think that's where you end up actually having to change culture because people are forcing the culture to shift to accommodate them as a part of this tribe. So I think it's something to think about. I don't know if you guys talk to like potential, potential students or you guys talk to, to folks who are interested in the program. But there are a lot of little messaging things that we're not aware of that we kind of hint like, hey, you might not belong here and like you're not ready. And so I think being aware of those things ends up being quite important. So you're talking about people who never make it in, but I think there are also people who say enter our center intending to get a PhD and then after two years say this isn't for me and leave, right? Mm -hmm. So I think any organization can do things to work on retention, you know, trying to make sure that everyone finishes to the best of their ability, whatever that may be as opposed to trying to make sure that the top people leave with a bunch of nature publications or whatever it is, right? So I think that there's differences there that as a center we can be cognizant of, right? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm one of those individuals that your data shows are somewhat disadvantaged in the process. But on the flip side, it was through education that I've, I was able to break out of my financial situation and be much more prosperous financially than my family was. In your opinion, the fact that not just me, but several others of our principal investigators have had this economically disadvantaged backgrounds growing up and in some cases also involved with race, uh, does that give us an opportunity to bridge the gap or is that not really relevant? Yeah, I think I definitely think so. I think one of the most successful, uh, successful programs of helping first generation students go to college and persist in college has been to create this kind of bridge where you have first-generation students going to school and then they become like juniors or seniors and then they start mentoring the freshmen who come in and create that kind of community, create that little flavor of jello that's permeating throughout and starting to create a little change in the culture. And so, yeah, it's been, I think, pretty crucial, especially my favorite example was, um, was a girl who she didn't know what hummus was and she was really embarrassed because she didn't know what hummus was and other folks needed to kind of you know, explain to her what hummus was, because uh, apparently it's a very important part of our culture right now. So, um, so I think those, those kind of bridges are really important to know that there are other people who have walked this path. I'm afraid we're running out of time, so I want to say thank you again very much. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for having me. Have a good one, guys. Thanks, you too. And that's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you again to Alvin Chang for presenting this webinar and giving his permission for us to share it as a podcast episode. Thanks also to Peter Clement, Becky Rodriguez, Nicholas Namath, and Rigoberto Hernandez for contributing their questions. Our music is by PC Free and Dexter Britton, and this episode was edited by Alicia Magici. Thank you to the National Science Foundation for funding the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which produces this podcast. Our usual disclaimer, though, the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. Want more Sustainable Nano? You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or listen to any of our episodes at podcast.sustainable-nano.com. 
We also have a blog with over 250 posts, mostly written by students in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which you can find at sustainable-nano.com. And you can reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at sustainablenano, all one word. We'd love to hear from you. Speaking of which, thank you so much to everyone who sent in suggestions for our new podcast sign-off. Uh, Kelly from Alberta suggested, appreciate the small things in life. Jonah submitted this charming couplet through our website. He said, in all things big and small, we wish you well, one and all. And Mike from Minnesota just emailed, it's a small world after all. Full disclosure, Mike is my dad, so I might be biased in liking that one. Brainstorming some more for this episode, we also came up with, little things can make a big difference, or there's no small science, only small particles. Anyway, what do you think? Let us know. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and stay tuned for our next episode in just a couple weeks. 